I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Stardust. Victoria, for your hand in marriage, I'd cross oceans. You're funny, Tristan. Oh, Tristan, a shooting star. I'd cross the wall and I'd bring you back that one star. You can't cross the wall. Nobody crosses the wall. Have you seen a fallen star anywhere? We're in a crater. This must be where it fell. Yeah, this is where I fell. You're the star. You're the star? Really? Oh, wow. You've seen stories of magical worlds. <laughs> wicked witches. <laughs> flying pirates. And dashing princes. But never has there been an adventure quite like this. Everyone's talking about a fallen star. When I find her, the glory of our youth shall be restored. This is the part where you tell me who you are and why you're up here. We're just trying to make our way home. Touché. You better be telling the truth, you two-faced dog. I can get you one of them, actually. Very good guard dogs. They can watch the back and the front door at the same time. Enough. Where's the girl? You have seconds to live. Now we shall begin. This episode was commissioned by Ruki Suvedra, and it's another one of those films that Sharon and I love so much that we needed that nudge to get our analytical minds into gear for fear that there is less under the hood than we once believed. With us once more from Sequentially Yours, Debbie Morse. Hello. Karen Nagisa. Hey there. And from Synapse, Brendan Agnew. Greetings. Philosopher once asked, are we human because we gaze at the stars, or do we gaze at them because we are human? Pointless, really. Do the stars gaze back? Now, that's a question. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Our story really begins here. 150 years ago at the Royal Academy of Science in London, England, where a letter arrived containing a very strange inquiry. It had come from a country boy, and the scientist who read it thought it might be a practical joke of some kind. But he duly wrote a reply, politely explaining that the query was nonsense, and posted it to the boy who lived in a village called War. So named, the boy had said, for the wall that ran alongside it. A wall that, according to local folklore, hid an extraordinary secret. 
Stardust began as an illustrated fantasy story created by Neil Gaiman with art by Charles Vess. It took four years to write and illustrate and was published in 1997 in prestige comic format by DC, even though it's not actually a comic. It was then adapted into a novel in 1999. It spent years languishing in movie development with Terry Gilliam and Aaron Kruger attached. Eventually, Layer Cake director and Guy Ritchie's producer Matthew Vaughan took the helm and co-adapted Gaiman's text with writer Jane Goldman. Stardust tells the story of a young lad named Tristan who lives in a village named Wall in Victorian England, which contains a portal to the world of fairy, a dimension just as big as our own that exists but a shadow's breadth away. Tristan journeys through the portal to track down a fallen star for his sweetheart, unaware that the star has taken on human form as a young woman named Yvain. The book is quite graphic and unflinching as Gaiman was writing a fairy tale with adults squarely in mind. The 2007 film, while it follows very similar lines, has a tone more whimsical and light and appealed to me personally a lot more, proving influential on my own work. So the first chewy concept that I'm going to hand out for, for you folks to get your teeth into is the magic system in this story, because I didn't realize until examining it analytically that they establish it really early on, and it holds pretty much through the whole film. So how does the magic system work? The most obvious is that it's it's a, like there's a equivalent cost, um, the the easiest visual is Lamia gaining the the energy of the star's heart before she goes out. That gives her back her youth. And every time she does a magic spell, there's a cost that, and you and you see her become more and more aged and decrepit and weakened. It's kind of like uh, Todd McFarlane's Spawn, except for rather than there being a counter that slowly counts down towards zero, when when he uh, uh, exhausts his finite power, he will have to leave Satan Malbolger's army. Sorry, uh, it, she's just <laughs> slowly counting down to the point where she's old and decrepit again. And every time she decides to do something, it costs her a little more. It's almost like the way she uses magic. She doesn't make long, slow, careful, calculated, almost tortured decisions. She almost goes like, oh, fuck you! And just like blasts someone and then goes, oh, now I've got a haggard looking face. <laughs> or, you know, yeah. or, or now my, my, my arm's gone all gnarly. It's almost like she's used to using power like throwing power around a lot more or, or maybe just that she's been without the ability to use it for so long that she's almost gets a little drunk on the uh, uh, ability to use it. Mm. I think that's definitely part of it because if you, if you look at the way she behaves even before she eats that last bit of the star that they've got left the like the first introduction that we get to her really is when they do the um, 
the the picking out of the bits of the mongoose. Oh, uh, anthropomancy. Anthropomancy. Yes. But when they all when they all choose the the piece, so mm-hmm. it's like I've got his kidney, I've got his liver, I've got his and heart. I have his heart. She cheats. She looks, she looks and yeah. the others don't. Now, obviously, like from the word go, these are wicked witches, and they've got that kind of triple sister thing going on. Um, so you can. But you she's can, the wickedest. Exactly. You can understand that mythically, these are not going to be people who carefully think out and plan <laughs> their enchantments yeah. exactly but she go, but right from the beginning it's like well she's um she's as impulsive as almost everybody else in this story is uh, but with wicked ends it, it gets me like number one like with her greed i mean all three of them obviously you know greed is definitely the driving force but especially with her and it's the fact that clearly the magic system, like you were saying, it's, what's the, is it a law of thermodynamics when it's like. Mm, for every action, no, it's an equal and opposite reaction. Yeah, not just uh, that. It's the, second, but, it's the second law. It's the one that basically no, talks about entropy. No energy is, there is no energy that is created, created or, destroyed. or destroyed. It all only change for, changes for. Mm. And that, that's, you know, I, I felt like a good interpretation of the magic system. But it, it just is funny because she continually reacts in anger and or impatience. And every time she does that, mm. she later hinders herself. Mm. In the uh, book, the three sisters never had names throughout the four years that Gaiman was writing this serial, much like yeah. uh, he, he cites Oliver Twist at the beginning, you know, when uh, uh, Charles Dickens was serializing Oliver Twist. Uh, and that's pretty much what he did with this thing. And, and uh, he had no specific end in sight. As, as you said, they, they just kind of reached it. And in his words, he had all the pieces suddenly sort of slot into place. And, uh, you know, which caused him a measure of satisfaction. I think the exact wording he said was uh, he preferred the film's ending as a film and the book's ending as a book, which is a a nice way of saying absolutely, you know, right for their mediums. Mm, That makes sense. I mean, I I think what impresses me most, I love magic systems that have have curbs on them. (laughs) And ultimately, how finite this one is reinforces that mythical concept that Nothing is free. Everything costs. Mm. And ultimately, you don't... In a, in a world where magic exists, there has to be a reason why everybody doesn't just use magic all the time. Yeah. So when there's evident uh, expense... To maybe get rid of excrement. Things, um, <laughs> you, you feel like... It's it's a real thing rather than just something that the author has thrown in for convenience sake. Yeah. It's, it's like it would cost you as much energy to tidy a room as to cast as a spell that tidy tidies the room. the room. Exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. why you know it's 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 less hassle to just get up and walk. Uh, over to the window and close the curtain with your hand. That would make then, magic feel special and precious. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the the idea that as well in this, even things that represent magic have to be bought or traded. They can't just be given away or um, or had for nothing. Yeah. Um, what? Sorry, I was, I was saying about the uh, the names of the sisters. They didn't have names over those four years uh, because it was said, and I love this use of language. Their names were lost under the sea. 
Yes. Oh, that is, that is a gorgeous phrasing. I it's love that. Spine tingling. Uh, but they're they're called uh, Lamia, Empusa, and Mormo in the, uh, in yeah. the film. Uh, but yeah, the, the the magic system that gets introduced at the beginning. We uh, when a young lad called Dunstan Thorne crosses the wall to uh, uh, visit Wall Market. Uh, is it Wall Market? Sorry, hang on, I'm thinking of friggin' Final Fantasy here. The, the village <laughs> is called Wall. The, the, the human village is called the whole, Wall. No, the whole village yeah. on the whole both village? sides oh, right. is called Wall. Oh, for goodness sake. And there's a wall in it. I and mean, there's a wall down the middle of it this that cuts off the human book was going to be called Wall. Too many walls. <laughs> <laughs> you mean it's called Wall and it has a wall? That's ridiculous. And the wall is in the town of Wall. What? What? Anyway, it's too wally. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, no, he, he, he goes... To uh, and you just sort of wanders around the um, uh, the market, and the, originally in, the, in the, the written story, he was getting a, a a trinket for his sweetheart Daisy, and uh, then it turned he 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 meets a, uh, a gorgeous captive princess named uh, Una, and the performance. Of, of, of Kate McGowan as Una, I think just makes the film from the very beginning. She, first off, when she approaches him, she has this kind of little sachet. She doesn't just walk over. She's like sort of, oh, hey, I like you. In a, and, and then there's this like weird chemistry between her and Ben Barnes. For a start, Ben Barnes is like, oh, 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 and who wouldn't be? <laughs> that's, that's, honestly, you guys, I wish you could see the look on his face when he does that sound. It's great. <laughs> She's a handsome young lady. Um, and, but, you know, she herself, like, when she smiles, it seems to come from somewhere genuine, and she seems to really take a shine to him. And the deal that she goes back and forth on is, I will sell you this snowdrop and it could which will bring you luck and it could be for the colour of your eyes or is it the colour of your That's, hair no 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 he initially asks about the bluebells mm. and she says that she uh, they could cost the colour of your hair or all your memories before you were three I'll check if you like mm. but then she tells him you don't want the bluebells you want the snowdrop and this one costs a kiss and I mean automatically like straight out the gate that you're in a really just dynamic, interesting world of magic where they're like, whoa, do you, you would like take the colour of my hair in trade for this luck charm? And suddenly it's just everything's interesting at that point. And that sets up the dynamics of the, uh, of the film insofar as everything costs something. And I definitely took this... Hmm, I said the other day that uh, take is a bad word for when it comes to uh, to being inspired because take implies it's taken away and doesn't get put back. And borrow doesn't work either because that suggests that it's absent for even a brief moment. <laughs> um, and I said it's more like to take leaf cuttings of something and then cultivate them into your own trees. And, uh, you know, th th effectively... You're taking just that, that little grain, but all of the actual work of the growing them into trees, you put in yourself. And I love that idea of cultivating, or you said propagating. Propagating, yeah. Okay, so I propagated <laughs> several of the uh, uh, motifs in this movie. And, and um, in very specifically The Princess Thieves, actually not even, like, not even that late, Secret Rooms, a unspeakable power is bestowed and it takes something it takes something significant and then later on in the princess thieves whenever viola casts a spell she needs to eat 
sugar really quickly otherwise she uh starts to physically flag uh, as as the actual effort of refocusing this energy exhausts her she's being used as a conduit and it's not a one-to-one it's not like um a, some sweets worth of energy is being sucked out of her it's just the effort of channeling that but this extends into how everybody is characterized in this story mm. as well because if you look at each individual person's qualities and the things that they're good at and the things that they're not so good at there is always some kind of trade off it's like this person has this skill mm. but as a result that means they don't do xyz particularly well yeah. or this person responds in this way and that means that they eliminate another reaction that they could possibly have there's this constant shifting back and forth of nothing can be all things and you you ultimately have to make choices about which things you want to be and are they going to be the things that are true to you or are you going to try and trade off the things that are true to you in order to fit in with what's around you and in so far as um, game making for, for tabletop and board gaming, and uh, I suppose this extends to video games as well, uh, but also in terms of storytelling, there's like establishing magic systems. Um, Harry Potter, as I uh, cited before, has got very much a soft magic system in that it, you t- it takes you time to learn a spell and then you just wave the wand and do it. And most spells and most magic can just be done. And then there are uh, other books with hard magic systems, none of which I can really name. I think uh, Wheel of Time has maybe a hard magic system. Yeah. I feel like Game of Thrones has a hard magic system as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, just in terms of the stuff that gets given and uh, the, the stuff that has to be sacrificed in Game of Thrones is sometimes pretty hefty. Mm-hmm. And I found very hard magic systems to be a little po-faced. But what I loved about what was laid down here was Una's it could be the colour of your hair. As in, like, you know, we can negotiate on price. Uh, you're saying that the, yeah. the principle of this works, what we're really doing is negotiating on price. <laughs> And yeah. the idea yeah. that, that um, something might be more flexible and negotiable, that something must be given, but we can maybe work with it. Mm. And I've definitely taken that to heart with Crafting New Century in terms of people just can't go around doing magic willy-nilly. But there are ways of maybe, not so much gaming the system, but there are workarounds. Mm. So another canny thing the film does is it uses the mechanics of these exchanges to characterize everyone in the film because mm-hmm. everyone who is villainous is all about taking and consuming yeah. and just like just like they're basically doing the whole Skeksis thing mm-hmm. like that's what the the witches are to to a point. Um, I thought of Rose the Hat as well. Oh, yes, oh hi there. Mm-hmm. And and whereas like you were saying with. Um, you know, we're first introduced to to Dunstan, and then also later, this is something that Tristan does: is they they try and make deals and bargain and, and do like an exchange, like a, a uh, you know exchange that actually involves like consent and you know things like mm. that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's, it, I, I found it interesting that the names of the witches are mythological creatures that eat people. Yeah, the mm. Lamia. Yeah. 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 yeah, Lamia and Mormo were, uh, what's all, they ate, uh, what's all, they ate children, I think, and Impusa, um, Hecate sent them to, sent her to eat travelers. Nice. Excellent. Yeah, now that fits. Did Lamia, and, yeah. uh, was that the demon in Drag Me to Hell? I think it I was. I believe yes. it was, yeah. yeah. The Lamia um, is, yeah. That goat yeah. that turns up and goes, ah! Yeah. yeah. I think <laughs> she's, she's somewhere oh, equivalent goats. to Lilith. That would make sense. And the, did you say that the the collective name was the Lilim mm. in the book? Mm. That that's yes. um, the the collective name for demons who are assistants of Lilith in um, her mythology. Mm. But what uh, gets given in that first night, in that first meeting, uh, Una takes Dunstan uh, in uh, to her yellow caravan to, uh, uh, I suppose, arrange a deal. And um, yeah. but but go to Pound Town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't come knocking when the caravan's rocking. Was the way I put it. <laughs> like she is, she is thirsty. <laughs> well, <laughs> no let's bang bombs. Come on. <laughs> exactly. It's that's a two-way street. It's a little more understandable in context, but only slightly. Like you can tell that if. Humphrey had turned up, she might have been a bit more, eh, not not sure, mm. you know? Well, ultimately, I think what I really like about that, that, uh, okay, inverted commas, transaction, because it's not really a transaction. Mm. There's, there's, there is a sincerity and a, a genuineness there um, that makes it feel a little bit less like, I'll trade you your virginity for a kid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it is a some- which ultimately is what ends up happening but it is a something is given something is taken yes. and then there's a long term thing that needs to be cultivated yes absolutely um, but, which a lot of people can relate to yeah but the fact that Una is I mean you know she's she's not hiding who she is it feels like she's spinning a yarn or telling a story but she is very upfront about the fact that she's a captive princess mm. But ultimately, she is looking for a distraction here, not a saviour. She she jokes about him releasing her and liberating her, but she knows that's not going to happen. She mm. knows that's not how this works. Um, and ultimately, um, what she does end up bestowing is... Um, and, and this is a little kind of name pun, which I don't know whether it's intentional or not, but Dunstan and Tristan are thorns who spend their life being protected by flowers. Oh. I nice. had not thought of that, but that is fascinating. Uh, there's a lot of sweeping overhead imagery in this. They made good use of a helicopter in some fantastic locations. Uh, it's a very post-Lord of the Rings film. I think more so yeah. than Harry Potter. There's, uh, I mean, for nothing else, Ilan Eshkari has produced a wonderful score a just truly oh, hypnotic score I, that you're going to be hearing throughout. I could talk about that score forever, and it's part of the details I was discussing as well. Yeah. But I'll let you get. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Okay. Please come on. Um, but there's there's at least two or three cheeky little bits of like even the main theme. Is 
but but at the same time, like it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's cheaply stealing. I think it helps that you've got Ian McKellen at the very beginning, just sort of um, uh, ushering us in. Who, by the way, is is billed as narrator. So it definitely doesn't say that Ian McKellen is not Merlane at that point giving us the tale of, of what happened when two other worlds bordered by a portal interacted. But yeah, having McKellen there adds a theatrical weight to proceedings. Victoria is uh, the girl that uh, uh, Tristan has a thing for, and um, we'll just hop, skip, and jump over this. Originally, like, first off, the in, in the book, um, as I said, Dunstan was going to get a, a trinket for his sweetheart, Daisy, and he ends up... Uh, Cuckolding her, would that be the word? Cheating on Cheating her? Cheating on her. Yeah. Um, and, and bringing back a, a, a child, uh, Tristan Thorne, or a child getting delivered to him after nine months. Effectively, Tristan is a child of two worlds. They don't really go into it that much. It's, it's more of a sort of a 11th hour revelation. But um, he's got fairy in him. They don't actually even really call it fairy in the film, do they? Um, no, they don't. Not outright, no. Um, but I, they, I think that that him being a child of two worlds or certainly him not being somebody who fits mm. in this tiny little village where everybody kind of, you know, you're born, you grow up, you die, looking at exactly the same faces as you were when you were born. Mm. Um, you know, going to Ipswich is a major expedition that is um, worthy yeah. of comment. And Tristan's got ideas that go so far beyond that that he pushes through impressive and out the other side into weird and off-putting. Yeah. Which is something I can relate to heavily. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, we've just done uh, Big Fish, and that was basically the same story about a young man who's too big for his town. But, uh, yeah, no, Victoria, played by Sienna Miller, is they do a good job of not making her seem genuinely dislikable to begin with, but then later on you realise around about the same time that Tristan does, oh, she's awful. <laughs> and um, the, the guy who seems to be uh, not so much infatuated with her but has decided that she's his is Henry Cavill. He's, he's playing sort of the, um, the Brom Bones uh, type uh, guy. Yeah, so we're all sat here on tenterhooks waiting for Daredevil to kick Superman's ass. Yeah, and it takes yeah. a while. <laughs> it does. Yeah, there. Uh, and Charlie Cox was, uh, was a relative, like an almost total newcomer at this point. Uh, this was his breakout role, yeah. yeah. And he'd, it, he'd done a bit of TV and quite a bit of theatre before yeah. that. I do mean when I said that uh, uh, Vaughn has a talent for um, uh, uh, d delivery and getting naturalistic delivery out of his actors. It, that really struck a chord with me in 2007. It was ahead of its time, and it, it's it's something that's worked its way in a little more into films over the past decade or so, uh, which is you know exactly right for me because I, I I love it when people say things as though it's coming internally as opposed to I've been given this rather silly line to say and I'm going to bloody well say it um, yeah. which uh, it, like no one seems to be 
uh, self-conscious in this, except at one point when uh, uh, Tristan is asked to go to a bunch of pirates, and Charlie Cox himself was like, oh, I'm not sure about this, and he actually seems self-conscious, which kind of works for the character moment. Not kind of yeah. about it, it totally works. And that... that uh, him starting as something of a klutz and, and that being factored into his character arc, I think, is one of the essential ingredients in why you don't reject Tristan as a complete... Burke. Yeah, from from the word go. Because, mm. And what you said about we realise around about the point where Tristan does that Victoria's... Awful. Um, awful. No, 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 no. No, the audience knows a long time before Tristan does that Victoria <laughs> is awful. <laughs> We're sat there waiting for him to catch up. But because it's when she says, Cox, he's going to go to Ipswich for me. Yeah, and, oh, God, I, the eye-rolling. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, the fact that uh, Charlie Cox plays him with such sweet affability means that you can see through that teenage idiocy to the qualities beneath which for this character and for this story is so so important because you've you've got to buy in to these people are worth the effort that they're putting into each other. Hmm. Um, he's not. Hor- it's not that he's horny. It's that he sees. He's trying to see the best in people because of his naivete, and he sees the best in this girl, rather than he just wants to be with this girl. She's awful, but she's completely. She's awful in a very realistic sort of way. She's just. Hmm. She's, she's a selfish. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, she's not a cartoon, she's not a caricature. She's the prettiest girl in a tiny little town. You can bet your bottom dollar she has spent all of her 17 years getting away with anything she wanted to do, mm. and it shows. Mm. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. Hence, at the end, you know, you want to get over yourself, but not said in a horribly unkind way, but just in a kind of, here's your rude awakening, I'm just going to drop you now, yeah. but not from too far up. <laughs> Indeed. But yeah. this is the look on his face when he delivers that line, though, you can tell that when he says you want to grow up and get over yourself, it's only because he's only just done that himself. Mm. So he takes her for a midnight picnic after throwing his uh, uh, throwing stones at her window. It's notable, by the way, that uh, to begin with, he throws stones at the window. She's like, what, what? Then at the end, he goes to throw a stone at her window and then drops it and goes, you know what, I'm just going to knock on the door. That's what, uh, that's that's what, what big real boys big boys do. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a neat little uh, um, uh, character moment. But uh, yeah, they see a, a shooting star flying across the sky and he says, I will bring you back that shooting star. First off, because his <laughs> I will bring you a polar bear severed head doesn't work because she's not the kind of girl who goes, oh yeah, that sounds why. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean that's a really great moment of like if they had even any chemistry at all she'd go okay I'd like to see that happen and she'd humour him on that but she's like a polar bear severed head why that's the most inappropriate thing I've ever heard sir and uh, uh, yeah he's a big th- fan of his dark materials yeah but, well they, I mean <laughs> it feels like he wants that kind of northern adventure and he wants that kind of remote uh, escapade to happen you know so far from civilization and if she had any of that as well then you'd see something occur but it's just a really neat way of showing these two are not going to end up together do not invest in them their perspectives are wildly wildly different yeah um, but the star uh, itself turns out to be the anthropomorphized embodiment of uh, just a giant ball of gas. 
uh, and it's uh, it's uh, played by Claire Danes uh, as Yvain, who is apparently millions of years old. And they were very worried that uh, the way she comes across is mostly complaining. And they were like, well, we're going to need a really great actress to be able to sort of pull this off. And they clearly pulled it off because I spent the whole f- first time I saw this film going, yeah, you were absolutely right, Yvain. Like, you know, she, she, yeah. she lands, br- like, breaks her leg, uh, a jewel falls on her, and then a burke falls on her, and then says, right, I'm going to bring you this kidnapped, injured woman to give us a gift to a mortal girl. And uh, you could understand, as a star, her being a little affronted at this. Yeah. It's a very traditional English um, gift, actually, a human being. That's mm. right, yeah. First anniversary, <laughs> first anniversary is paper. Second anniversary is lace. Third anniversary, kidnapped girls. Yeah. <laughs> the kingdom itself is being ruled with detachment by its uh, disconnected, power-mongering monarchy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very laissez-faire. Yeah. yeah. Um, Remote feudalism. Yeah. Yeah. The, the actual, They're so busy trying to kill their brothers, they don't have time to bother about human rights. Yeah. Absolutely. This is, this is what the whole plan is about, you see. You have loads and loads of kids, you let them squabble between themselves, and that way they leave the people alone hmm. to just get on with it. So is the land itself named Stormhold, or is that just an area of the land? That appears to be the kingdom that they are in, um, if we're going to take the book, uh, within fairy. Right. It is the kingdom within fairy, the same way, you know, if you play Changeling the Dreaming, White Sands is a kingdom, Willows is a kingdom, Apples, etc. Okay, okay, okay. Stormhold is to England what fairy is to Earth. Well, that makes sense. Okay, cool. So it's a, the, the fairy itself, rather than being contained within England, is like a shadow's breadth away and uh, is laid on top of and to one side of us. Yeah. Exactly. And that hole in the wall is the junction between Hmm. the two. And Stormhold is presided over by King Peter Peter O'Toole. (laughs) I'm just going to assume that's the third time he's played Henry II. (laughs) (laughs) It is fun to see Peter O'Toole play a vicious old bastard king. And you can tell in just seconds from uh, uh, Prince Charming from out of Shrek 2 turning up in the flesh um, as Rupert Everett, uh, his... Is that Primus, his first son? Oh, no, wait, Primus is Jason, uh, Jason uh, Fleming. Yeah. Oh, it's Secundus. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's possibly yeah. Secundus. And, uh, yeah, uh, the, Peter O'Toole g- actually genuinely sets up his second son to be murdered by the son Septimus, the seventh son, who's getting really, really good at killing his brothers. He is, in the book, apparently, a professional assassin, which you would be if you stood to inherit the whole of Stormwatch. Why would you want a professional assassin as king? There's actually there's a really nifty thing that they do with Septimus to outline where he ranks in the... The antagonist chain mm. in this story and this is something I really really appreciate about the way they play with the villains and the antagonists here is that they're because we see their motives quite clearly that allows us to work out how evil they are mm. you mentioned about how there is both cackling and scheming going on mm-hmm. here Lamia is pretty bad but ultimately, all she wants is the is the star's heart, which mm-hmm. is which is terrible, and she wants the immortality that goes with it, etc. She just wants to keep going, and her life at the expense of exactly. whatever else it takes. The point at which Septimus gets a kick up into he is now the main. You need to be terrified of this guy is when he realizes that the neck 
Atlas he's been chasing this whole time is being carried by a star who can offer him immortality. And now he doesn't just want to be the king, he wants to be the king forever. Yeah, yeah. there is that. So he's driven by greed. Yes. Sorry, a chill just went down my spine at the idea uh-huh. of someone this murderous and this terrible deciding they want to be king forever. Doesn't matter, that's not going to become horribly relevant this year. Anyway, moving on. Um, yeah. Yeah, but... Uh, on the, yeah? No. Yeah, the, the actual... The family setup of this awful, awful uh, series of brothers is, you know, whomsoever is good at killing his own brothers through cunning and violence shall be king... And uh, it, it, it's, it's a comedically evil family. And it doesn't yeah. take much for the good guys at the end to just be better than that. And there is actually a whole deleted sequence uh, where um, the uh, king and queen at the end, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the king's thoroughly aged and their grandchildren are gathered around crying over this king's death. And they, it's a mirror of this scene. They, they throw the uh, necklace out the window and no one goes to get it and no one even thinks about going to get it because they're just sad to see their grandparents go. And it's a, uh-huh. it's a sweet way of, of suggesting that, um, uh, that, that love has prospered now in, the, in place of this horrendous, hideous Greed, not even the the, uh, the 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 hatred that normally comes with 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 uh, resentment and things like that. Just looking to find and secure your own power and just maintain it for as long as you possibly can. And the um, the, the the horrendous backstabbing that comes along with that, literal backstabbing. Mm, yeah. Uh, did you folks notice that uh, all of the brothers this time around? If you've listened to the uh, commentary, they they pointed out, and I couldn't not see it. All of the brothers have um, their numbers of their, their names sewn into their clothing. Again, this is one of those little details thing. Like, I love that Septimus has sevens on all of his buttons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sevens and VIIs on his, uh, on his waistcoat. And the embroidery. It's lovely, yeah. um, And the tattoo yeah. on his hand. Uh, Quintus, Adam Buxton, um, he, he has kind of Vs on his nightshirt, but also the banding of leather on the axe embedded in his head, because he's a ghost is uh-huh. in the shape of a V because he's yeah. the fifth one. And when it zooms in as well on him, you can see that the Vs on his shirt are actually embroidered number fives. Nice. I, I feel that all of these things are, they're so important to introducing this this family and this dynamic in in a way that still feels playful and fun because they are so horrendous mm. and they're just about to invade the lives of, of basically like a, a John Hughes movie because that's that's more or less the vibe that they're going for with with Tristan and Victoria and, and sixteen like, Babylon candles ah, nice. exactly and, <laughs> and that even you know th- there's even a bit of that with because you know he was emulating Midnight Run so he's got a very modern sensibility and you bring something so pitch black into that you really do have to to give it a little bit of uh you know of self awareness so so like you said Alex. Secundus being introduced with the big fanfare and then like immediately dying mm. works so well because it's like yeah. okay these guys are terrible but it's also funny and it's okay cuz they're not like you, you know we, we get the sense that there is this added extra theatricality to things this this extra like not quite um naturalistic realism so that yeah, it makes the medicine go down. It is a bit like yeah. a, a, a King Lear plus ghosts plus comedy. Yeah. 
why, why does Peter O'Toole have a murder window? And it's not been used yet. <laughs> Open the murder window. I would yeah. bring my sons in. <laughs> he was saving it. He was saving it for his dying day. Just He can have a Just little murder window when he's dying as a treat. When Secundus yeah. gets flung out by Septuus, I'm like, how did he survive that long? Yeah. <laughs> Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm just going to go stand over by the murder window and gaze out longingly for an extended period. <laughs> it is—it's a lovely little touch, actually. Like any any kid with a with a slightly ghoulish sensibility will immediately warm to the idea that the brothers die and then immediately come back as ghosts with like. The f- the way they've been murdered, like one of them was frozen, one of them uh, was clearly burned, uh, and uh, they, they, they've got kind of like that, it's almost American werewolfy, mm. only the living can't mm. see them, and they just yeah. go, yeah, didn't work out for you though, you're dead. And there's that very American- British sensibility to these ghosts. American werewolf is actually referenced in this film. Oh Yeah. The Slaughtered Prince is a reference the to The Slaughtered, slaughtered Lamb. Oh. oh. Yep. <laughs> How did I not get that? But, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. Again, one of those little details. Um, another one that I like um, is that, uh, going back to the score real quick, Septimus's theme mm-hmm. is written in 7-8 time. Oh, my God! You're, no way. This is that Muso stuff you brought to our Hamilton show. Yeah. No, it is, it is really kind of fantastic. Also, Primus is always by himself. Septimus is surrounded with six uh, footmen or guards. Oh, nice. Is the Septimus theme the... Is that the one? Yep, that's ah. the one. You'll notice there, if you listen to it, the um, emphasis is on the first beat of the measure, the fourth beat of the measure, and the sixth beat of the measure. Nice. That's why it's written that way. Honestly, it may riff on Lord of the Rings occasionally, but Ilan Ishkari's score for Stardust truly is magnificent. Septimus is on the road to try to get this uh, uh, necklace back. Then he finds out it's the star. Lamia's riding around on a chariot pulled by goats. One regular goat, one goat that's a dude that she enchanted to be a goat. They're, they're playing the da, 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 just to say, look, it's exciting. They would like they even say in the in the uh, commentary like we had to get people um, just to get the momentum back up with this, and it works because you've got all these sweeping shots of the Isle of Skye and the Scottish Highlands, and it really does seem like a, a, like a giant but very believable fantasy environment. Mm. Those violins and mm. the woodwinds coming up as it switches from Lamia or Septimus to. Um, <laughs> Tristan and Evane. Yeah, it's that giant helicopter shot of the two of them walking five feet. Mm. 
But it's one of those, you know, we pay for the helicopter. <laughs> but it's, it, it, is, it, it is very exciting because of the score and because of that particular shot choice. Mm. Um, uh, another thing, Tertius is he starts out in groups of four and then somebody dies. That's uh, Mark Heap, uh, who uh, yeah, barely gets a chance to say anything in this, and most yep. Americans won't know. But if you're into if you're into your late nineties British TV, he was a comedy fixture. Barely says a word in this movie. Puts himself across entirely through facial expressions. Also, another uh, little not like they were trying to make it feel like it was fantasy, but believable fantasy. Uh, the coach that ends up... Is it Septimus's coach? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. It's the one that um, Lamia subsequently yeah, steals. Yeah, she steals. It's yeah. this big, oh, no, thundering... coach. Oh, Primus's oh, Primus coach. Yes, no, you're absolutely right. Thank you. Um, uh, so, yeah, Primus were playing a gig in uh, uh, Fairy, and uh, then uh, they, they steal the coach. <laughs> Jerry was a race car driver. Sorry. Um, but it's, it's models. Yeah. <laughs> It's modelled on a Humvee. It's got this real kind of like chunky, like no carriage was ever made like this. It's, it's got a really sort of aggressive masculine uh, build to it. There was a point later on that I hadn't noticed until I was watching it uh, carefully today when Lamy is being driven around by the horses and like no one's doing the whipping, so no one's on top. And then the, the carriage comes screeching to a halt and I realised she effectively engaged the brakes on a carriage that doesn't have brakes. It's like, it's, it doesn't quite do a, 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 a handbrake turn, but it's like she basically locks up the back wheel and the horses uh, uh, scream, but it's got the sensibilities of a giant car at that point. It's really neat. And the fact that you don't really question it shows how great like a magic trick that was. Well, and he's bragging it like Primus is, is he he's almost talking it up like he's talking up his new Humvee when uh, when Yvain is in there and he's sort of low key hitting on her. It's like, yes, I've got the biggest carriage of its kind. It's a brand. Oh, new. that's just, what he was talking about. Hungry. I think it just cut back in and he was like, uh, yes, it's the biggest in Stormhold. And he's in the bath and he's <laughs> tapping at the water. And I'm like, oh, God. Please don't get up to get the necklace. <laughs> yeah, I, I just love that he's he's sort of low, like he's he's not even humble. He's just like bragging about his my stuff. Uh, when, he sh- <laughs> when he should be like mm. noticing the big fat rock around her neck. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he's played by Jason Fleming, who's kind of uh, been dubbed the lucky rabbit's foot of Matthew Vaughan's films. He was uh, Azazel in um, uh, X Men First Class, the Red Night Crawler. Uh, and oh. he was, uh, along with Dexter Fletcher in uh, uh, Lockstock, Two Smoking Barrels, produced by Matthew Vaughan. We have to mention Ditchwater Sal, this hedge witch with low aspirations, who's kind of the Kmart version of Lamia, just sort of <laughs> <laughs> traveling the countryside. And, and, and like I said, with the low aspirations, when she finds out about the star, she's like, I'm going to get that then. And she's a local corner shop version, not Kmart. <laughs> okay, well, I was trying to find the Brit, the Brit- British equivalent, but uh, the Bodega Witch. <laughs> but that makes her sound cool, like Bodega Cats. But but she's the a witch. service station wise woman that you pick her up on the M25. Lord, <laughs> along with some overpriced beans on toast. <laughs> Maybe the flea market version of 
Lamia. Uh, she's played by Melanie Hill, uh, who has uh, you know, been in loads of British TV. She was Aveline in Bread. Yeah. So, um, and she was in The Bill and things like that. So, like, she honed her craft in sort of kitchen sink dramas. So all her deliveries, remember when I said Matthew Vaughan's really good at getting people just to talk like they're actual people? Everything Ditchwater Sal says sounds like a person who really exists. Yeah. Yeah. And she's uh, Un- she's talking she's talking nonsense a lot mm. of the time too, and she's Una's cruel uh, mistress. But again, they just managed to stay shy of this being really unpleasant by the kind of like I'll turn you into a bird and then back again. But she's never really like outwardly torturous of her. She's she's more just kind of um, mentally tormenting her and, and kind of like controlling her rather than being particularly overly threatening. She's not being really actively cruel per yeah. se. Yeah. So they just about get away with that whole like, you know, um, but, but also the fact that she's a princess makes it feel more like it's just a one-off scenario. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I do like the way as well that they seed um, the, the thread of the story that's going to involve Yuna gets hinted at in quite a, a subtle Your sister, way. Una. The, yeah, the fact that they're, they're talking about her and she went missing, but it's all went very vague. Missing. Frankly, I think she ran off, because who wouldn't like, yeah, this. buy this lot? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, she, she can't possibly rule being a woman. She can't? <laughs> Seems like you're not doing that fantastic a job. Mm. Yes. Um, honestly, yeah. she probably would have made a better... She hasn't killed a single monarch. brother... <laughs> They're gonna have to barely murdered anyone. Uh, we, we again. We, I, I think I mentioned this on our uh, raiders, or uh, maybe when we talked about. Oh, it was with you, Brendan. We talked about uh, the yet to be released Empire of the Sun show. Uh, we we watched um, Lawrence of Arabia, so we've we've seen young and old Peter O'Toole in the past few weeks. Lamia creates an inn out of nothing. She turns the carriage into it, which costs a lot of magic. And I don't necessarily need to talk about it in particular depth, but I did notice that the inn itself, while they created it from a... um, We'll talk about the effects in a bit, because I'm actually going to ask you about that. It resembled the Overlook this time. It had kind of a, a Bavarian sensibility to it. But it actually looked like that kind of, you know, do not go in here type big gaunt gothic kind of place at the crossroads and everything that that implies. It looks very foreboding, very, Mm. yeah, like you said, don't go in here. Mm. Like, this is a bad idea. And Yvain, of course, immediately goes in there because uh, she's, she's desperate. She's desperate. She's being rained on. She's being carried around by a unicorn. It's because she and Tristan have now parted company as she's escaped him. It's because basically, and my next question is going to be about Tristan's largely shitty treatment of Yvain to begin with. Like, mm. He's immediately, oh, I'm going to make you a present. Like, I'm going to make you a present. Mm. Now I'm going to make you a present. This is, this is an extension, though, of what I meant about it because it's Charlie Cox. Not it's okay. You know it's not okay, mm. but you just have this this feeling, or I keep saying you, I just have this feeling that he's going to realise that what he's doing is not acceptable. 
Um, it, it feels like if it had been Orlando Bloom, you wouldn't have got that quite so much. He'd have made it would have been disastrous. Yeah, yeah after he'd made playing a good Will. Humphrey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he would not have made a good uh, Tristan at all. Mm. He's too I old. I think one He's of the too old even by he really is. Yeah. Uh, he did, he'd just oh. done three Pirates films at that mm. point. He was finishing off the third. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think one of the things that really stops Charlie Cox's Tristan from being just like an irredeemable scumbag is that, and this is one of the changes from the book, they have him offer what's left of the Babylon candle of like, hey, look, let's, uh, you know, we'll help each other out. I'll give you this and you can get home. And, you know, it's not like it was his fault that she got knocked out of the sky in the first place. Mm. So he's he's not as actively scummy in her predicament that way. The the other thing, because, yeah, he's still being kind of a dirtbag to her, is that he spends so much of especially that first half of the movie getting the shit kicked out of him. Yeah, um, it's it's the, you know, the throw Wesley down the hill principle of like, yeah, you're going to have to pay for a lot of this because this is really crappy behavior. Mm. Um, and so, like. He, whether whether it's like clownish or genuinely terrifying, he does you know get kicked in the seat until he starts being a decent dude. Mm. And also, well, it's not as if it's a surprise that he makes silly decisions because it, this is something that is is beautifully consistent with him throughout the film. When he is presented with a situation where he has to make a decision from several different choices. Nine times out of ten, it's going to be the wrong one. He mm. doesn't think things through. He's impulsive. Uh, he goes with the first one he hits on that seems to be a good idea. He doesn't entertain the notion of consequences. When he shines is when he is told, this is what you have to do, Tristan. Now go do it. <laughs> it's the selfishness of a teenager. He hasn't really fully learned empathy yet. And so it doesn't occur to him to think of anyone but himself and what seems like the best option for him at that moment. Whereas, which which kind of is like, okay, we know that, you know, everybody's pretty shit when they're a teen. Everybody kind of thinks in that way to some degree, but most people grow out of that. And so you have the hope that Tristan can and does over the course of this story, you know, grow up. And be like, okay, I see Evane as a person instead of just an object. <laughs> Such <laughs> growth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he. Well, this is the thing, though. He does. This is how shit guys are, by the way. This amount of growth which gets <laughs> a fucking round of applause. But but yes. it, you you can kind of see how it's framed. That when he gets to the crater, he is expecting to see a rock. He is yeah. expecting to see uh, an object. And although he readjusts a little too easily. Well, that's the, this is the but, thing, though. That's oh, fine. I'll just bring a woman back. Right, fine. His, as his, is tradition. His eyes, ears. <laughs> And other sort of mortal senses pick up quite quickly. Oh, it's not a rock. It's a it's a girl. <laughs> it's not a rock. It's a girl. It, it takes his um, it takes his conscience a little while to catch up. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry, ladies. Uh, I really am. But again, it's Charlie Cox. So you let it slide. <laughs> I think it helps that he's like you said that he only thinks about himself. There is a filter of Victoria played again by Sienna Miller. Like it's a thankless task because people are just going to go, "Ugh, this girl!" when she turns up. But um, because he's like, "I've got to impress this girl," rather than just 
I will have that girl and I'll just do whatever it takes to, to just to make her mine. It's almost like he wants to make her happy and he, in his foolish youth, mm. believes somehow that presenting her with... I don't think he... I don't think he really wants to give her a woman to keep forever no. so much as say, look, I actually brought back what landed. It was a woman. You can chat. I think that's probably <laughs> what he maybe thought. Chop, chop, it's... dig, dig. Did it enter into it at all? <laughs> it's, it's absolutely about proving that I can, I can do what I... Because he has that whole spiel about, I'm not a shop boy, I'm just a boy who works in a shop. Yeah. And he wants to prove that to her. He wants to prove that he could go further than Ipswich. And, <laughs> Can such it, a thing you know, be done? But, but yeah, it's, it's about proving that he, he is more than just a teenage boy's braggadocio. And so he's got like his, his teenage boy instincts are working against trying to prove those teenage boy instincts wrong when he's trying to bring her back. It's it's really about the time that we get to to the inn that he starts to sort of recalibrate. Yeah, he's helped by some stars that whisper to him, "Save our sister," and then that seems to be his thing from that point onwards. He he suddenly becomes much more aware that others are trying to get to her, and it seems to be from that point on he's trying to keep her safe and not in a possessive way just more more of a like it becomes more and more the thing that he decides he wants to do and he, he's not he doesn't deliberate with himself uh, over it too much but it's what it gives him is something that he was clearly lacking as a shop boy which is clarity and this is the the key to him being you know growing uh, you know it, it, we see him in essence grow into a man and uh, he, at the end, when he reappears in his village, looking very physically changed uh, to a completely different kind of... He has a completely different bearing about himself. Uh, it, he has that measure of clarity. And that's really all, all it required, you know, for him to work out what was important and who he needed to focus on and who he needed to support and invest himself in. Mm. And it, I suppose it just came in part and parcel of realising there's so much better out there than Victoria. Well, a, a big part of it is, and this is something that I, I can sympathise with him very strongly, there is something about standing in front of a world which is full of boundless potential and thinking, what the fuck direction do I take? Yeah. And and just having so many options open to you that you really have no clue which one to set down. And ultimately what Evane brings him is purpose mm. and and a a way of knowing instinctively what direction to go in. And he he alludes to this very briefly when he talks about knowing how to get back to wall and he's talking about um I, I maybe it's my love for victoria bringing me home but it it feels like that's kind of a manifestation of a growing sense of purpose and knowing what direction he's supposed to be moving in <laughs> and there's also the major advantage he has of the fact that the audience has already met humphrey who is a complete dick <laughs> So <laughs> another there's, thankless there's a job for a young Henry Cavill. Yeah, there's there's yeah. a ceiling of dickery above which all he's got to do is not go beyond that, and he's not as bad as Humphrey. A ceiling of dickery. 
<laughs> just duck your head a little bit so you don't hit any of the dicks on the ceiling. It's fine. Yeah. Side note, by the way, I love the fact that Waking Ned is guarding this uh, this portal to another world, and he does so for twenty years at least. Yes. Yeah, it's so charming as well that he's guarded this wall for so long and he has no clue what he's guarding. I don't want to know what's on the other side of it. Yeah. Uh, but the one of the uh, only notes the, that uh, Gaiman left for is like, what, this doesn't make any sense, was how did this old man learn karate? And <laughs> I feel like, you know, Pratchett, who at the time was definitely alive, could have sent him a note going, oh, he could learn karate in a variety of ways. There were various <laughs> pamphlets <laughs> circulating around England at the time, teaching yeah. old men with sticks how to clobber people. And also, you, you might think if you're being a guard for a, a, an interdimensional portal, you'd need to be somewhat handy with a gnarled staff. I took it, too, that some of it was just because he's right there next to this other world, mm-hmm. some of that, a little bit of the magic atmosphere or whatever of that world spilled over and kind of not gave him immortality, but a bit of a lengthened life and, mm. you know, made him more spry and a little faster. <laughs> and, yeah. you it, know. <laughs> it, it makes sense that in a fairy tale, a person who is defined so much so that his name is just the guard by their job would have the skills necessary to do that job appropriately. So just, you know, if he was just being infected by fairy magic, the nature of story says that he would know, well, he would be a fucking ninja. Because mm. <laughs> that's what you got to be to guard the wall, because all he is is the guard. It's also a neat way of just showing, like, you know, things are not always what they seem around here, so you can't take anything for granted. I suspect he may be slightly influenced by the fact that it it seems, although it's never stated explicitly, that time passes differently on uh, the fairy side of the wall, or at least that people don't age quite as fast. Mm. Um, I mean, you mentioned this, the fact that they recast Dunstan as young Dunstan and old Dunstan, but Una's just Una. Yeah. She has a little grey streak in her hair, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. Captain Shakespeare, played by Robert De Niro, one of, uh, in uh, Matthew Vaughan's own words, one of the uh, top three actors of his generation, I would assume the other, at least one of them being uh, Al Pacino. And uh, he was cast because he was super macho and and like a man's man, a manly man, a man about town. And uh, they wanted to uh, upend that to some degree with uh, Captain Shakespeare. Like, was he in the book quite this level of fabulous? In the books, the, the 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 airship captain, like they have maybe a page and a half. Oh. Uh, this is this is a very very short thing that they uh, they developed a lot. 
Yeah. yeah. I suppose if you get Robert De Niro, you go, right, let's really, uh, you know, g- give this some uh, some room to breathe. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, he's very much a comp- he's very much a compilation of the pirate captain and the uh, hairy man who uh, rents Dunstan's car. Mm. Oh, the hairy man. I recall this in the original book. He gets the Babylon candle from the hairy man. It's like he's the, the first guy who helps guide him through the woods. In the film, the Babylon candle, which is this incredibly important magical artifact, it's like the, um, uh, not quite the Ark of the Covenant, at least the headpiece. Uh, but uh, it gets sent to him um, with included with his basket that he's uh, sent to his father as a baby. Uh, from his mother, who we see this lovely, sorrowful message written for him, and the candle is actually does serve a practical use in that if he thinks of her, he will be taken straight to her. She actually wants to meet her son again. He, you know, he he needs to grow up first, but it's this incredibly important implement. So when he offers what remains of it to Irvine, it's. You know that that's a that's a close connection. That's something not just some hairy man gave him. That's something very important. It's also the first step toward him, like being more like thinking of other people. In that, you know, that's that's the one way that he could get to see his mother, and mm. and he's willing to to give it to basically a stranger. And it's also one of the things that both the snowdrop and the candle are are very good. Um, you know, sort of planting and payoff things that they use yeah. uh, throughout the film because they both will, come, you know, get introduced very early on and then come up and have varieties of uses. Yeah, the uh, uh, the snowdrop that uh, uh, Dunstan exchanged for a kiss and then more um, at the beginning does turn out to be an extremely uh, strong protective uh, luck charm. And there's a the point where he. Um, I think just gives it to Ditchwater Sal in exchange for what a ride. Um, yeah, safe passage and food. Yeah, I love her delivery on. You have no idea what you just gave to me. That this that um, like it really sort of gives that snowdrop. There's a like the the opening piece of music by Elena Shkari is called Snowdrop, and it's I love it. It's it's got this um, watery elegance to it, and that echo of the the protection that his mother has left for him. Because mm. um, there was a point where I thought it was specifically for protection from Ditchwater Sal's magic, but then I thought, well, why would she be selling something that is just effectively a shield against only huh. her? That's protection. Um, but um, oh, you want to be buying one of them snowdrops? <laughs> but he accidents happen um, after she is killed by Lamia, and he um, blows her finds, head the fuck off. Yeah, and he finds the wreckage of the carriage caravan he retrieves the snowdrop and takes it with him mm. so chances are that snowdrop is still protecting him when he goes up against Lamia at the end yeah. hence why she's having to throw vases and things at him because she probably can't touch him directly mm. oh that's that's absolutely it you know she tries to hit him with like the green lightning stuff and uh you know th- that's where they turn to the if you have any excuse to end in a sword fight you end in a goddamn sword fight <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely back to captain shakespeare they spend a long time gruffing up uh, Robert De Niro, and then he ends up um, uh, being um, incredible behind closed doors of his pirate crew of this uh, dirigible airship that flies around collecting lightning. This wonderful, like Final Fantasy uh, style uh, scenario. Uh, you know, behind closed doors, he's uh, uh, convivial and warm and avuncular and uh, camp, but not ridiculously so. 
And Not insultingly so. Yeah, there's a, a line to be trodden with this character who then later on t- uh, turns up enjoying a series of increasingly more fabulous taffeta ball gowns and admiring how pretty he is in the mirror in a way that seems to troll the guys who turned up just to watch Robert De Niro be a man's manly man. Yar. And it's a, a straightforward comedy scene that Lyra was getting worried at because she thought Septimus was going to burst into the uh, cabin and murder Captain Shakespeare, who was having a whale of a time dressing up. Uh, and uh, she was like genuinely worried about him. So the fact that he survived meant a lot to her. And then the, the follow-up to that is that this pirate crew that he's been going, yeah, just been wenching uh, to for all these years effectively putting on this giant performance of someone that he wasn't all knew about you know the, the depths of who he was or at least you know, pretty much got the shape of him and are all very accepting which I found to be like, even back in 2007 pretty cool As I, I oh, yeah. think that's lovely when they they're kind of like oh you'll always be our captain and it's it's yeah. again it, it comes back to this idea of people knowing or, or working out within the framework of the the uh, the family or the social structure that they're in who they are and who they're not and feeling out the how do I be more who I really am and um, and and how do I let that guide how I grow to be um, and yeah. also three words dread pirate Roberts yeah that's about yeah <laughs> Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite little details in that scene is when the one pirate says, we always knew you was a whoopsie, and the other pirates look at him angry like, what, what the hell are you saying about our cat? What did you just call well, him? They, they push him to the back, don't they? They're like, shut up. We don't let him talk. Yeah. It was meant to be, you know, a kindness that he said this, but even so, it kind of reinforces the, yes, even if you use a slur when you're trying to be kind, it's still a slur, maybe not that. The fact that it's the old dude. <laughs> yeah. But speaking to the, the love of details that this film has, you know, watching it again, you'll probably catch on to it a little bit the first time, but watching it again, Dexter Fletcher's like pirate second first or second mate character or whatever mm. clearly knows. Oh, and he's, he's clearly not both trying to trying to cue both Shakespeare and the rest of the cue. It's like the stagehand who's trying to keep the performance going, just like, okay, make sure everyone hits their marks. You've got to say R, <laughs> we've got to do our big fist thing and yeah. <laughs> and he does quite a lot of eye rolling and like, oh, you make my life so hard sometimes. Mm. <laughs> like, I, I know it's only a matinee, but come on, some of us care. <laughs> yeah. Just wonder, actually, when he does the bit where he throws the mannequin out of the window and they, you know, it's wearing... Your young pup! Tristan's clothes. I thought... Is that how most of this crew ended up being there? Like, he stages some ruse about throwing them out of the window and then suddenly someone turns up to join the crew and they've just pieced it together over the years. (laughs) And he's pulled this trick with each and every one of them. And now, of course, they all know because he's pulled this trick with each and every one of them and then forgotten. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, but uh, like I said, it's, uh, it's, it's... kind of a heartwarming non-judgmental and it doesn't really have to uh, you know reach a conclusion on this it just allows Captain Shakespeare to be Mm -hmm. Shakespeare and and, uh, um, like from the sounds of it he will continue this kind of skullduggerous demeanour but at the same time be more comfortable about who he is because it seems like 
he didn't want to let the men down and he didn't want to end being a lightning collecting pirate captain. He was enjoying that. Mm. He enjoyed having his own private boudoir in the sky. He seems to really love the theatricality of it. The fact that he's playing up this reputation and it's like there's this kind of well, you know, are you a uh, a cross-dressing can-can dancer or are you (laughs) a um, a, a ruthless lightning negotiator and entirely you can be both <laughs> and that's the yes. choice that he makes and, yep. and he doesn't seem I don't think he would want to he doesn't seem to want to cross dress in public it's not a mm. He. I don't think he wants to be seen as feminine yeah. I think he's not a, trans he just yeah. he, he enjoys play acting that in private. He has a private but, self, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, but it's not a matter of, like, he's not doing this in behind closed doors because he can't mm. in public. It's because he only really wants to do it privately. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I'd, I'd love as well the fact that he, he so thoroughly enjoys being able to... Um, I think the line is, it's so wonderful to be able to confide in you charming young people. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> Yeah. What you said just now about being a lightning negotiator and a can-can dancer sounds like such a busy evening. Let's talk about Yvaine because we've talked about Tristan and his, you know, being a mawkish, foolish boy. And, uh, it, you know, there's a there's a point where Yvaine is much more on her own. I think it's a really important bit of the film when Tristan gets turned into a mouse. And we kind of get to see how Yvaine feels about him when he's a mouse. And and she's sort of like left without a human being to uh, to, to help support her. She's still on her way. She, you know, he's on his way, but she has to communicate with him. And also she's not sure that he can even understand her because he wants cheese. Mm, yeah, there's something else that's really important about this bit as well. And it's that not only can she not con- uh, communicate with Tristan, she can't communicate with anybody. Her yeah. only companion is Sal, True. who can't and, see her. Yeah, because of that earlier spell. And so she's very much on her own, which is how she'd spend most her of her extremely state. long life. Exactly. One of the things I... Uh, door about the way Yvain is portrayed in this is that she's this she's this eternal being but she's not a goddess she's not a, a divine creature that has somehow taken manifestation on earth hmm. she's but not Yvain blessed is, with a endless wisdom no she's a gothic heroine hmm. she is somebody who has effectively spent her whole life in a house on her own reading books she's been watching humans uh, she's been observing their lives from afar she is 
greatly pained by people's tendencies to be horrible to each other, but what she's seen of love has warmed her heart and she really wants to to sort of, you know, she didn't want to be here, but while she's here, she's kind of embracing this potential for connection. But the fact that she's this uh, sort of very isolated, um, but still kind of ballsy and, and, and um, aware of her own feelings and opinions kind of person just makes her so appealing and the fact that she's the epitome as well of a a, one of my favorite phrases in literature which has got to have influenced Neil Gaiman because he was definitely a Narnia fan and that is even in your world son of Adam that is not what a star is but But only only what what a star star is made of that I, I just that sentence melts me every time and this whole film feels like a tribute to that line. Mm. So much of Vivane's journey through this film is and they don't make they don't make so much of a big deal out of it, but they do show it consistently is almost all of her experiences she's having are things that have never actually happened to her before, but she at least has some sort of frame of reference for. She's heard about it. She's seen other people do it. And at first she's kind of pissed off because like the first thing that happens to her is like getting a flat tire after being run off the road. And you're Mm. just like, well, this sucks. I am not a fan. (laughs) I am not a fan of this at all. My leg hurts. You're a dick. And I'm chained up to a tree. And, but you still get to see her delight in all of these, like, Ooh, a warm bath and a massage. That's cool. Or, you know, getting to learn how to dance, just all of these things that she's, got a a vague familiarity with a little bit of rapunzel in there Mm. oh oh yeah i i feel like there's a lot of of rapunzel in or 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 there's a lot of of evane in rapunzel even if accidentally Mm. i've just thought uh, actually mentioning uh romandu in uh dawn treader this is a star in human form who used to be in the sky and will go up there again. You're absolutely right. This is totally that. He has a daughter who Caspian falls in love with and comes back to marry later, played by... Oh, my God, Ben Ben Barnes. Barnes. Holy shark. the circle closes. (laughs) You know, if you told Ben Barnes that, he'd go, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He would say it in the classiest way possible. Mm. Yes. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, Evane, uh, what, what it really comes off like is that Evane's been watching humans love and lose for what, what could be millions of years, and she's coveted that, but not in a way that's made her ache until she really realises that she's starting to feel that herself. And there's a really lovely human scene where Claire Danes just shows us these acting chops she's always had. Like, she was the best thing in Terminator 3, and, like, she was ferrying around this complete moron of a boy in that one. Um, Yes, I am Claire Danes, and this is my This is what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much doing that in Romeo and Juliet, actually, now that I think about it. But, yeah, yeah, the the whole... Not only... um, It's the wanting to love and the wanting to be loved and and how she describes her heart. She really just... She makes you ache the way that she performs this scene. And that sells the romance angle, even though she's talking to a mouse. So, (laughs) you know, it's almost better that um, Charlie Cox sort of sat that bit out because you get her without 
the complications of having him there. Yeah. And, and she's she's not capable of being anything but what she is mm. and, and who she is. And that's, I think, such an uh, appealing quality to the character, especially when she's surrounded by all these people who, for, for various reasons, some of which are noble, some of which are misguided, some of which are necessary and sad, people who are trying to be something that they're not. Yeah. Also, it suggests that men say stupid things and that maybe if we were turned into mice for a bit, we might be able to have a decent conversation with a woman by just not saying stupid things. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing what what learning to listen will do. Yeah. Um, And he's got these great big ears. It's great mouse acting. That mouse is just like, (gasps) say it again, Evane. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, this we don't need to talk about this, but Tristan's little morning plan, having united with his true love. Uh, by the way, side note here, when they're in bed together in the inn the next day, they had to CGI a shirt onto Charlie Cox. Wow. I kid he you was not. Too, Charlie Cox was too sexy for a PG-13 rating. Maybe. But, like, maybe it's just it made it difficult to sell in different countries, or maybe the just like test audiences was like, this is too sexy. Uh, apparently, it's okay to have this girl's like bare shoulder and like you've got the L shaped sheet, so her chest is covered up, and that's fine. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, they, they, they was like, put some CGI shirt on that guy, otherwise, I don't want to see his nipples. Um, but, yeah, no, I do. Tristan's little morning <laughs> yeah. plan first off is to. You know, this this girl that you've, um, this this lady that you've uh, slept with is having her first peaceful night's sleep in a human bed. And the best thing to do is lunge at her with your pocket knife. <laughs> and he slices off some of her hair and then decides to, to go back to his tiny village to confront the shallow Victoria, having realised how empty she is, and gloat at her about his development. And rather than telling Yvain that that's what he's going to do, or leaving her a very clear written message, promising to be back in half an hour, he leaves a half-garbled, easily misinterpreted, cryptic message with a deeply high bloke. Do you want a Shakespearean tragedy? Because that's how you get Shakespearean tragedies. <laughs> Yeah, this is when it swerves hard back into John Hughes' territory. Yeah. Yeah. I was yelling at the... Karu can attest to me yelling at the TV when we watched it. <laughs> Take the time to find a damn pen and paper and leave her a written message. Or just shake her awake a little bit. Like, Yvain, I have to go to Wall to tell Victoria about the two of us. It's the right and proper thing to do. You keep sleeping. I'll be right back. Yeah. I mean, I, even if he had done that, obviously that's when Lamia strikes and takes her away from the ho- from the from the inn there. The is it the slaughtered prince there? Yeah. yeah. Um so yeah, the the film would have basically moved on anyway, but there had to be this just extra layer of drama where he shows how grown up he is by making the most boneheaded tragic mistake. But but, yes. but I can't even I can't even <laughs> conceive of saying something that easily misinterpreted like i you have to work at that it's easier just to say it directly mm. and but to make it a message that can easily be passed on i, yeah. I think he's not what, yet grown up 
Well, exactly. Is I think what purpose this serves is it shows that human... the importance of clear communication. Importance in of clear a communication is is a fundamental part of it, but ultimately, human development is not a straight line. And in spite of the fact that he had a whole montage, he still hasn't quite got to the point where he's making entirely sensible decisions yet. He's on a, a line of momentum towards taking something of Evane to Victoria just to prove that he went there and back again, mm. if nothing else. And that momentum like is not going to be interrupted, regardless of what obviously sensible things might be <laughs> a better way of handling it. And obviously, thankfully, the film doesn't go, aha, see, Yvain then tries to walk to the wall to walk through and then turns to dust as a result of that. And there's your ending. Fuck you. Uh, it doesn't do that. Thankfully, otherwise, this would have felt really cheap. Mm. Like it's 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 a foolish oversight on the on the part of a guy. And um, even Shakespeare, he spun out the, uh, the the misinterpretations of Romeo and Juliet mm. for for a good act and a bit. Yeah. Frankly, full he wants to be hit. Charlie Cox wants to be grateful that he wasn't made to wear an ass's head. Yes, he is. <laughs> Although, interestingly, um, uh, as I was going through my DVD collection earlier today, Michelle Pfeiffer in Midsummer Night's Dream turned up and looked exactly like Lamia. And then Michelle Pfeiffer in Ladyhawk turned up and looked like a young Lamia. And I was like, oh, this is just like, Lamia's lurking <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> I, com- I commented that, that, my gosh, she barely looks older in the scene when she first takes the piece of the star and, mm. you know, looks radiant i'm like she barely looks any older here than she did when she played catwoman yeah i'm like dear god what sort of immortality portion has this woman been taking she might actually be eating stars stars. (laughs) (laughs) it's also one of the few times that i've ever seen an actress look at her own behind and go dad asto in the mirror it's it's a it's a really cute moment yeah, more of that, please. Mm. And I love yeah. that her sisters are sort of like, ah, ah, you get to be the pretty one this time around. And it's like, you know, that, that she's milking it with them. And she throws off her clothes to stand in front of them completely naked. And, um, yeah, and, and we're left with the image of that. <clears throat> um, but... Um, <laughs> But Charlie Cox had to have a CGI shirt. Yeah, put a shirt on that guy. (laughs) Making me uncomfortable. (laughs) Anyway, honestly, if you look at it in terms of the story, Tristan has pretty much undergone his arc by the time he goes to see Victoria. And Yvain has pretty much undergone her arc just before this as well. So the big finale, the thing that that, uh, gives us something much more cinematic than what uh, Gaiman came up with, um, I was racking my brains while watching it. It doesn't seem like the two major leads learn anything new or cross any new Rubicons that allow them to be bigger people through dint of this protracted, very impressive series of sequences. Mm, I think what this, this end piece is mostly doing as far as Yvain uh, and and um, Tristan are concerned is consolidating who they are mm. and showing them who they can be to each other. And there is actually one thing just in the transition between the, the kind of second act and the final showdown mm. that I really like, and it's the fact that... Um, Una sees Yvain heading towards the wall and goes charging after her to, to stop her. Yeah. 
because if for no other reason, then it kind of underlines that that heroic impulsivity mm. that Tristan has shown he has in spades, he gets from his mother. Yeah. Una's great. I really love the, the, the performance and the character herself. She's got this zest for life and like she's not letting her being a captive keep her down. She's, uh, I, I could she frank- makes the most of a, of a world in which she is a slave. Yeah, yeah. I could frankly have done with a whole movie about her. But uh, yeah, she, she is powerful enough as a uh, figurehead in this. And we get the whole... Um, he, he finally gets to meet her. And then she, uh, when she says, I'm your mother, that's, it's a really um, honestly delivered line, even though they're actually not that different in terms of age, the, uh, the actors. Kate McGowan, born in 75, is only seven years older than him. But she has that bearing and that maturity. And there is, uh, there's a lot of physical acting on her part. It really well, does and- feel like she's got her own her own story because she. Yeah. This is something that's different in the books. They they just kind of like hook up for that one night and then it's sort of incidental to both her and Dunstan. But I'm I'm pretty sure that her chain is the chain that he keeps on his pocket watch that he takes out a few times before he gives it to Tristan. And so like they they're both clearly either thinking oh, nice. of the other person or the family they could have had with the other person, even though we only get glimpses of that through both. Uh, Dunson and Una throughout Tristan's film. And I feel like I, I have to disagree with you a little bit, Alex. Oh yeah, no, the... please. Do. I, I would like to be told if there <laughs> if there's any progress made on the characters, please. Because uh, I feel like when basically when Lamia shows up and when Una like shows up to grab Evane before she walks across the wall, like she still thinks that. Tristan is leaving her for Victoria because of the because of the shit message. Yeah. And like she so she assumes that he's abandoned her until he shows up and goes through everything he goes through there at the end to get to her. Mm. And I think she says herself a star can't shine with a broken heart and I think that they would their story would never have been complete without that final him coming and proving that my ill-conceived plan was you know proving to her yeah my ill-conceived plan was for you it was stupid and ill-conceived but it's a big dramatic version of of maybe him rushing to stop her from getting across the wall uh just just with a lot more mortal combat involved Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And like every relationship, especially every romantic relationship, has its first major challenge. And so often, you know, I think that maybe the characters' traditional arcs might have been sort of finished, but because the film is is such a, a romance and that relationship is such a big part of it, I think showing the the first hurdle that this romance has to clear is is equally important because that's when they go from being two adult individuals who have gone through a journey to a a unit yeah. that will then you know because i mean they're going to become like monarchs and so like this has to be a relationship that can last at least a bit yeah. ideally yeah uh, and the, the the momentum on this whole sequence it just zips by it's a good like half hour like um yeah, of of the actual movie, and and it's just the from the uh, the the 
fake out walk back to uh, Wall and then they uh, are getting picked up by Lamia and then the actual production design on the witch's house it was described in the book as a little house in uh, a little cottage in the woods and this is yeah. this cathedral Built in Pinewood Studios with this amazing, like the the, the British, uh, you know, I, I don't usually go all national pride, but we're pretty good at making movie sets. I will say that at least. You know, we've got like with Pinewood and Leavesden and Elstree, we've got uh-huh. this um, heritage of, of British craft and technical expertise and just like really making things that feel like they're actually there even though um, it's effectively balsa wood and you know the the the, the, the inn facade was uh, you know the, the just 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 wood and they'd painted it to look like stone but it was so uh, realistic that uh, one of the uh, tech guys was uh, going through the set and going well this isn't wood this is stone then he taps on it and goes nope that's wood <laughs> <laughs> that's how lovingly crafted and I think it holds up in HD as a result of this attention to detail, well, we we saw Flash Gordon yesterday, and Ooh. you can see the seams oh. on everything. And I love oh, that yeah. movie because you can see the seams on everything. But the difference in in production design on the two is night and day. And we're going to do a Flash Gordon show as well because it made. It, it, I think it's the film that's made oh. Sharon laugh the hardest uh, <laughs> that I've ever seen. It. It's not even supposed to be a comedy. But, no, it's uh, not. <laughs> but yeah, she loved it. But yeah, the, the momentum and the editing on this whole sequence, the choreography on the fight. Now, back when we did Princess Bride, Brendan, you said that the, maybe the only other fil- uh, film that sort of rivaled the Inigo uh, Wesley uh, fencing match was the choreography on this fight where Septimus first attacks Lamia and then gets killed with a voodoo doll in this really creepy drowning while floating in midair sequence and then gets marionette puppeteered effectively into fighting Tristan while his ghost watches incredulously with his brothers he like he lifts up and the ghosts all look at him and he's all like he shrugs he's like that's not me I'm not doing this <laughs> yeah I'm sorry so Brendan what what was it specifically about this fight because I, I I don't dispute that it is that it's it's really impressive how they uh, they choreograph it the the biggest um, thing that I think helps us be one of the most impressive duels of its kind um, you know I'm, I'm strictly speaking of the the whole like Hollywood uh, swashbuckly sort of fight because hmm. you know kung fu wuxia action films are a whole different category but with this so much of the fight has to have one of the actors either hamper their own mobility because they're walking with this weird limp mm. or because they're bent over backwards and half the time that the actor slash stunt performer cannot see their partner which is mind-bogglingly yeah. difficult from a, a combat choreography perspective because so so much of that relies on on careful visual yeah. contact with your partner yeah tr- uh, so yeah the measure of trust and training on this one must have been off the wall but apparently Charlie Cox learned to sword fight in just a couple of days from doing this and it's like are you sure you don't want to train him for a few weeks before he starts poking at me with that enormous chopper that he gets given by the pirate king his problem is not the sword the problem is that his offhand he keeps dropping it and he needs to keep it up for an extra defensive (laughs) 
Very it was true. bugging me this entire time. I'm like, look at Captain Shakespeare. He's using his offhand as a defensive. Why aren't you? <laughs> He'd only just learned. And also, so had Tristan only just learned. Yes. He wasn't so, very good at school. Yeah. And uh, we didn't mention it, but uh, when uh, Robert De Niro gives him a haircut, he goes from having these short little early 90s curtains... They were uh, to to this like luxurious Lord of the Rings do, and it's just this sudden incredulous moment of the camera jumps back to him, and he's no, now got really long hair in the barber's chair, and it's like, what happened there? And it's just one of those moments of this is hairdressing magic. This is just how it works, yeah. But it, I love the fact that Tristan looks baffled as to why his hair is suddenly dangling somewhere around his chin. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but but yeah, the, you're absolutely right, Brandon. The uh, it's not so much how f- uh, impressive the fight is to watch, especially as who Tristan's fighting isn't even Septimus anymore. It's just a. Uh, it's not even. You know how Darth Maul is just the hand of the Emperor. It's not even Darth Maul at this point. It's just a puppet. It's not about that level of confrontation or even Aragorn versus Lurtz so much as the actual, the, the, the physical know-how and prowess required to conduct this fight safely and pull it off, because it is very impressive. Yeah, there, there were multiple times where because of the way the actor was moving, they had to have had them, like, harnessed on, on something so that they wouldn't literally fall over and, and just... <sighs> I've I've done you know I've I've done stage combat back in my day and I've never done anything remotely this complicated. I would not even try to do something like this without hmm. massive like just like months and weeks of of going through the blocking over and over again. Um, I and I and I love seeing that kind of flex from someone who had never really done something like this before. Matthew Vaughn, you know, you talked about how he's a very he's a very um, comfortable director in Lair Cake, and in this. He's absolutely flexing, and by the time you get to this fight, it's like he's planting a flag saying, I am going to be a kick-ass action director, mm. and here is my audition video. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's neat that um, uh, in the actual, in the final battle that's uh, uh, protracted and, and, and involves many stages, the other two witches who have been tearing apart crocodiles and ferrets and wolves to read their entrails... One of them ends up getting um, uh, torn apart by the critters that get let out of the cages by uh, uh, Tristram, uh, which is a neat moment. However, when both the sisters are dead and uh, Tristram is fighting Lamia, who's using this giant glass, like, um, what would it be called? Almost a scimitar. Like with this sort of square edge, like kind of the way that the Uruk, which was designed fights. for Magneto. Yeah, I know that this yeah. the big glass knife was originally designed for Magneto in X Men Three, and then he walked from that project. And I don't know what was going to happen with that thing, but obviously we'll never get that good version of X Men Three. Uh, but um, yeah, this uh, the, 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 this you know frantic blade fight happens. However, something occurs in the actual middle end of this fight that always blindsides me and it's always really powerful and I always wish it was real Lamia just cuts Yvain free and and just in tears goes what's the point anymore my sisters are dead I've now got to face either a a slow eternity without them or I'll just peter out myself but ultimately what's the point of being around forever if they're not here 
and just go. And that's a gothic... That's a go now and leave me by the Phantom. That's that's a real ending for Lamia. And then uh-huh. they get halfway down the hall and Lamia's like, <laughs> You fools! That was a trap! I had to get her heart to glow again. And then she spends ages throwing glass at them and cackling. And it's like, whatever mileage you could have made by tricking them is totally dispensed with here. I, like, just like, There's so many other things she could have done. But that, not that I wanted her to do, but that just saying go, I'm done, is more powerful than what she does, which then ends up with Yvain burning her alive and, you know, because she's an unrepentant evil cartoon villain. And it's like, it's still a great sequence. And I know that at least one of you is going to go, I love it. But uh, I just, I, re- I was, and I suppose it's not that it's not really to the detriment of Stardust. Just thinking that made me think harder about endings and villains and antagonists and what to do with them rather than just punishing them, rather than just killing them, rather than just eliminating them from the world. What could you maybe do that's almost more haunting? And I just feel that it may just be that Michelle Pfeiffer is that good of an actress and throws herself into being Lamia that even this sequence, I totally bought it, and I buy it every time. She's very convincing. It, that's more or less what happens with the the witch in the book, because oh. she just shows up and is like, yeah, I'm, fuck it, I'm old, I can't do this anymore, I'm just gonna, what, what is even the point you can go? Uh, maybe that was something they were trying to capture, but mm. yeah, it never, that part never works for me until... Evane gets to take some of the power in the situation. Yeah, that's and, the redeeming quality about it. And and having her go all Ark of the Covenant is <laughs> the the only reason that I'm all all that bothered about the end past her saying go because I yeah it it does take too long to get there. I'm I'm sure that with a couple tweaks you could have something like that without mm. making it seem artificially extended because that's that's the big problem is. Is it is it never quite feels genuine to the characters in the same way that all the other actions yeah. do? It it feels like her just fucking with them to fuck with them. Yeah. yeah. Also, it is it's troublesome in. I just realized the way you were putting it uh, that all that Tristan had to do was show up and then, through acts of brutality and with the help of Septimus, kill her sisters until she's sad enough to just let this waif go. And then Evane gets to walk away with her hero. You're absolutely right. Evane does get to actually burn the shit out of her. Just this Rose the Hat vampire. It's very important that Evane gets to do that because yeah. they show you the previous star. And so they show, like, they, those are her sisters. Like, this is these these witches have been eating her family for mm. however long they've been around. It's it's. I think it's very important that she play a part in ending them. Mm. Yeah, and the fact that she gets to do so by simply being herself, by just being able to drop Shining. all of the masks and all of the the pretenses and just shine as she is designed to do. The shining. No. They're not special, they're starving. Uh. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry, so many parallels there.
then we get this wonderful, happy ending. And there were several variations on this with more bitterness to go with the sweetness. And, you know, from what I just said about what the way they could have ended Lamia, there, there were other ways they could have ended it with maybe Yvain taking out one of the witches so she's, you know, not a complete damsel in distress. Uh, but it's it's hard to argue against how satisfying it is. So it really comes down to how we're feeling as the film delivers us an unabashed happy ever after. The film calls it shot in a weird way several times, but I feel like the the microcosm of this movie is when Tristan is cutting the chandeliers because the movie is very aware that it's adapting something that is full of familiar tropes. It brings attention to them. It will then undercut them for the sake of a laugh because, you know, playing against expectations is funny. But then it will also do the thing wholeheartedly and do it well. Like, it takes him a couple tries, but he rides that chandelier. And the the ending is the payoff to all of that because while while it is very much, especially because Ian McKellen is narrating it, you feel like this is a, a it's very self-aware that it is a story and it plays with those tropes you still, by the time you get to it, it's like The Princess Bride. It has earned its its happily ever after. Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah, they've... No one would argue that this, you know, this is still somewhat of a bittersweet ending because they've kind of been through hell, yeah. both of them, in their way. And also it does end with their symbolic uh, slash literal death. With the, uh, the But the way that McKellen's talking us through it... It's it's a going to the Grey Havens. Yeah, it's a reward for a life well led. Hmm. And I'm very glad they didn't actually show the uh, deleted scene with the the grandchildren. It, it it's with McKellen's guiding hand. We can just you know even though he's been absent for the rest of the story, it just closes it out in this wonderful fashion. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it's it's always a like I said, it's a deeply satisfying film to watch, and it makes you feel um, a glow. And I, one of the things that I love about the way everything comes together at the end is that they, they are shown to be sharing themselves and their lives and their hearts with each other. It, it indicates a relationship of equality. Yvain is not sacrificing her place in the heavens in order to participate in Tristan's life. And although the way McKellen phrases it is, he who possesses the heart of a star... Ultimately, Yvain is sharing her immortality with him, and first he shares his mortal life with her. So it's not that she gives anything up or he gives anything up. They're just they're exchanging their places in the universe. Mm. This recording ran to two hours and 45 minutes and it featured a lot of rambling, especially on my part. There was a 10 minute intro that got really heavy, 10 minutes of talking about Neil Gaiman, 10 minutes on the state of fantasy films throughout the first decade of the 2000s, 6 minutes on the practical effects which was 
good, but along similar lines to things we've already said before. And all of this needed to be cleared in order to lighten the load and make this main show as sprightly as it was. But I've saved each section and edited them together as a bonus 50-minute cutting-class episode that our $5 patrons and above can download this weekend. School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you once again to Joel Robinson, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Angus Lee, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Johan Clayson, Joga Seeger, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Matthew A. Siebert, Evan Jankowski, Kat Esman, Sarah Montgomery, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Tom Painter, Dan Hepner, Marty Huey, Mark Luksh, Brian Novak, Frankie Punzi, Aaron Lecluse, Lorraine Chisholm, Timothy Green, Cassandra Newman, Duran Barnett, Benjamin, Joseph Gluck, Greg Downing, Kieran Dashler, Dan Mayer, Jameis Enright, Nick Ord, David Sheely, Chris Finnick, and Joe Crow. And many thanks again to the sponsor for this episode, Rookie Suvedra. We hope you enjoyed it. And we will be back next week with the one anime that managed to slip the net into this commission season. And it's a Studio Ghibli, but maybe not the most expected. It is Kiki's Delivery Service. So we shall see you for that. Huge thank you once again to our guests, Brendan Agnew of Synapse and Caro and Debbie of Sequentially Yours. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. forever, except he who possesses the heart of a star, and Yvain had given hers to Tristan completely. When their children and grandchildren were grown, 
was time to light the Babylon candle. And they still live happily ever after. <laughs>